What a gift we have in your scriptures, Lord. Your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Your word is a sword to fight off the powers of darkness. Your, your word, we can just sink our roots deep into it and get sustenance and nourishment that we need. And Lord, I pray that this morning you would unleash the power of your word and that we would see you in the scriptures, love you, trust you, understand the coming of Jesus more clearly and be more faithful to walk the path you've called us to walk here. So I pray for your help. Give me strength and wisdom and heart, Lord. And we ask that you'd move in a mighty way this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's go ahead and uh, turn to Isaiah chapter 10. If you need a Bible, I always say this every week, but it's really important. If you don't have a Bible, we'd like you to have a copy to open up to. And so go ahead and raise your hand. We'll bring one to you. I didn't look up this morning what page Isaiah 10 is on. So if somebody could look that up and just kind of shout that out. 574. Thanks, Yvonne. 574. So we're studying the book of Isaiah. This is a powerful book, 66 chapters. And this morning, we're going to come to the end of the first major section in the book of Isaiah. And are we going to kick some stuff up here on the screen? Thanks, Colin. I got this picture. Put it in your notes. So here's the first 12 chapters. I just kind of want to walk us through this so that we can see where we are. And then we're going to focus on chapter 12 this morning. So in chapter 1 through chapter 10, verse 19, Isaiah kind of, he weaves together three different main ideas. He repeats them over and over again. One is that Israel has sinned and God's going to send Assyria upon Israel to punish her. That's one theme through these first 10 chapters. But second main truth, God's not going to destroy Israel through Assyria. He's going to stop Assyria's destruction of Israel and God's going to save a small remnant. Mercy of God. He's going to save a small remnant. So as he looks into the future, Assyria is going to come and it's going to invade Israel Second thing, then God's going to stop that. By the way, the first thing happened in 722 BC. Then secondly, God stopped it about 680 BC. And then as Isaiah looks to the distant future, the third main point in these first 10 chapters is in the distant future, God's going to have a baby be born of a virgin in the line of David, fully human, but also fully God, God's going to be born on the earth in the person of Jesus, the Messiah. He's going to cleanse Israel from all of her sins. He's going to use Israel to spread the gospel to every nation, tongue, and tribe until, and his kingdom's going to be increasing constantly until finally at the, at the end of history, at his second coming, he's going to judge the wicked conquer war, put war to an end, and the whole world will be filled with the peace of knowing God. So those are the three themes in in chapter 1, 1 through chapter 10, verse 19. And at this point, Isaiah anticipates a need that his readers have, and that is he really wants to address how should they be responding to this message. Those who are listening to him speak, what should they do, those who are alive at this time? So just try to feel what they would have been feeling with this message. Imagine that you heard from God, China, 
or maybe Russia is going to invade America. You'd want to know what you're supposed to do, right? Be a very important question. And so that's this next section. You're, you're right, Colin. Keep it up there. That's the next section, starting in chapter 10, uh, verse 20. And look at verse 24. We're not going to read this whole section. But just look at verse 24. Thank you, friend. I appreciate that. Verse 24. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of hosts, O my people who dwell in Zion, be not afraid of the Assyrians when they strike with the rod and lift up their staff against you as the Egyptians did. So what should God's people who are alive at that time do? They should not be afraid. Why? Verse 25. For, very important word in the Bible, there's the reason, in a very little while, my fury will come to an end. And my anger will be directed to their destruction, to Assyria's destruction. So don't be afraid. This is just going to be for a very short time. Then I'm going to stop what Assyria is doing. I'm going to punish Assyria because of her sinfulness. And I'm going to save a small remnant. You've, you've been like the sand of the seashore. Punishment's coming because of your sin. But I will save a small remnant. So that's where we end at the end of chapter 10. So now, the next section, it's, not, it's in your notes, you can see it. Isaiah anticipates a question, and that is, okay, we were like, a sand of, like the sand of the seashore. We're going to be a small remnant saved, but what about all of God's promises that through Israel, that he would multiply Israel, massive number of people, and spread the gospel to the end of the earth, re- remove the curse of sin, bring the blessing of God to all the nations? What about all those promises? And that's what Isaiah covers in chapter 11. And what he says is, all those promises will be fulfilled in the birth of the Messiah. Now, we're not going to go through all of chapter 11. We're going to focus on chapter 12 this morning, but just to give you the framework. Look at verse 1, chapter 11. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. So, Picture Israel as a stump, it's like been cut off, there's a stump left. There's a little shoot that's going to grow up in the line of Jesse. Who was Jesse? David's father. So in the line of David, a child will be born. Now, now that should make us remember all the stuff that Isaiah has said already about the coming of the Messiah. Namely, chapter 4, he said that the branch is going to cleanse Israel entirely from her sin. Chapter 7, The Messiah is going to be born on earth as a baby of a virgin, born of a virgin. Chapter 9, this baby would be fully God. So this is all talking about Jesus. And here in chapter 11, he fleshes it out even more. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And then he says that the Holy Spirit will be upon him. He'll be empowered by the Spirit. Verse 2, the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. What happened after Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River? What was the very next thing that happened? The Holy Spirit came upon him, right? Empowered by the Spirit. That's what Isaiah tells us here. Then in verses 3 through 5, the Messiah will destroy the wicked and right every wrong. Just look at verse 4. With righteousness... He shall judge the poor 
and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. So all that's going to happen at the end of history when he comes back again, his second coming, Jesus' second coming. Verses 6 through 9, this is a great section. There will come world peace as a result of Jesus' second coming. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. It doesn't happen now, right? Wolves and lambs, they don't live together. They, there's a meal going on there, okay? The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat. The calf and the lion and the fattened calf will be together. Little child shall lead them. So this is a picture. You can read the rest of the section. This is a picture of world peace. So all at, at the second coming, as a result of Jesus' second coming, war will stop. Peace will reign. Then in verses 10 through 16, the Messiah is going to bring salvation to the nations. And he's going to gather his people to himself. Look at verses 10 through 12. Oh, this is rich. Why do we as a church here have a focus on unreached people groups like the you people in Central Asia where Raj and Scout are involved in, in church planting or with the Reef Berber people in North Morocco? Here's, here's some of the reasons why. Verse 10, in that day, that's the day of the Messiah right now, between his first and second coming, the root of Jesse, it's Jesus, who shall stand as a signal for the people's plural, of him shall the nations inquire. The nations will all be inquiring. They, he will be saved from every nation, tongue, and tribe. His resting place shall be glorious. Verse 11. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant, the remains of his people. Now there's this long list of where he's going to gather them from. From Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. Verse 12, he will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. So the end result of Jesus being born, first coming, second coming, the spread of the gospel, is that Jesus will gather his people from every nation. All the nations will have people in them saved. Men and women from every nation, tongue, and tribe gathered to God's people, to the true Israel, and he'll gather them to himself. Okay, so that brings us through chapter 11. And then chapter 12, which is what we're going to focus on today, Isaiah brings to this, this first 11 chapters to a conclusion. And so this, chapters 1 through 12, is the first major section in Isaiah. Whole nother thing going on in chapter 13. We're going to see, woe to this nation, woe to this nation, woe to this nation, woe to this nation, chapter after chapter. We may cover a whole bunch of those next week. We'll see how far we're going to go. But right now, I want you to feel what's happening in chapters 1 through 12. And in chapter 12, what God does, this is really precious, is, is he speaks through Isaiah and describes what God's people will be like way in the future, during the time of the Messiah. So who's that talking about? You. I mean, isn't this amazing? In about 730 BC, the year 730 BC, God has Isaiah talk about what we will be like now. Does it just like send chills up and down your spine? 2,700 years later, we get to read, this is what God's people are like during this time, the time of the Messiah, between the first and second 
comings of Christ. And there's, there's three things. Start in verse 1. You will say in that day, that's the day he's been talking about in chapter 11, the coming of the Messiah, the gospel spreading, you will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. So the first thing Isaiah says about what God's people are going to be like is we will thank God for forgiving our sins. Let's ponder this. You were angry with me. Do you understand that God was righteously and justly angry with you for your sin? This is so important. It's not a pretty thing to think about. It doesn't make you feel good. But if you really get this, and then you get the next thing he says, it'll make you feel really good. Better than any other feeling you could have about yourself. But do you understand, has, has it resonated with you, that the God who's created me, the God who is there, the God who rules the universe, has been justly and righteously angry with me because of my rebellion against him? Have you felt that? Have you owned up to the reality of that? You've got to see it. You've got to see it. If you don't get the bad news clear, you won't understand the good news. So see that. Thank you. All right. But, he says, you, though you were angry with me, your anger turned away. <laughs> so it's like he was justly and righteously angry with me, and then his anger turned away. Where did it go? It's got to land somewhere. You, want to, you don't want to have it land on you. Where did that anger land? You know where it landed? If you're trusting Jesus as your Savior, as your Lord, as your heart-satisfying treasure, then that anger was turned away from you and it landed on Jesus. The Father's anger against you and me for our sin was poured out upon Jesus in his death on the cross. And Jesus absorbed all of the anger that God rightly had against me. And if you're trusting Jesus, against you. So how much anger is there left in God's heart towards you for your sin if you're trusting Jesus, if it's all been absorbed in Jesus? None. All of it's it's gone. You can look anywhere in the universe. There's not even a speck of anger that God has against you for your sin anymore. So you were angry against me. Your anger turned away that you might comfort me. When you put your trust in Jesus, what comes upon you is comfort. Guilt lifts off of you, right? Love and forgiveness from God comes, rests upon you. You're loved by God. You sense his presence. You feel his favor. You're at peace with God is the way Paul puts it in Romans chapter 5 verse 1. So the first thing that'll be true of God's people is we will thank God for forgiving our sin. Do you? Do you thank God every day? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for forgiving my sin through Christ. Okay, now, second, God's people will trust God and not be afraid. So this continues the idea of verse 1. It's what God's people will be saying. Look at verse 23. Here's what we'll be saying. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. 
With joy, then, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. So we'll say, God's my salvation. And because we trust God as our salvation, we will not need to fear anything. Anything. We'll experience God. He says, giving us all the strength we need. The Lord is my strength. And he's my song. As we feel his love and presence satisfying our hearts, we'll sing with joy. So he'll strengthen us. He'll satisfy us so that we sing. And we'll be so full of him that we'll joyfully draw water from the wells of salvation. And because he's our salvation, we're trusting him. As we look into the future, we'll be free from fear. We're going to come back to that one in a moment. Third, God's people will call others to glorify God. Verses four through six. And you will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. This is what we're saying to each other. We're saying, give thanks to the Lord and and to the lost people too. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout, sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. I kind of see a cause-effect relationship when we thank God for our sin, that the outflow of that is we will trust God as our salvation and not be afraid, and the outflow of that is we will call others to glorify God. Believers, trust God, call upon God, glorify God. Unbelievers, call upon God, trust God. In fact, I just mentioned Wednesday morning... I just thought of this. Uh, I was meeting Chris Keener at Starbucks, but before he got there, I saw a couple sitting over to my left, and, and she had her phone out, and they were doing the whole, you know, I don't know what they were looking at, laptop was open, and they just looked devastated. And I just sensed that I should go over and talk to him, you know, and when you get those, you got to go with it, okay? You just got to go with it. I've, I've never regretted not going for it, Okay. And I probably could have done a better job, but God, that's okay. He doesn't, he's not worried about that. I, and so I went over and I, I just felt like I should say, you know, I, I can tell you're really distraught. And I just want you to know I'm going to be, I'm going to pray for you. And, and, and God, God here is here, cares about you. I wish I would have said something more about Jesus, but anyway. And, uh, and then you always wonder how they're going to respond, you know, and, and they really appreciated it. It was very interesting. But, but so, so I was, I was saying, call upon the Lord, Right. I was saying to them, call upon the Lord. I'm going to pray. You guys can pray. God will meet you. So I hope to see them again at that Starbucks regularly, at least once a week. So we'll see what happens. But that's what we do. So the outflow of this is that we call others to glorify God, to call upon God, to thank God. Hey, just one other thing. Dave Clark would like me to mention this, I'm sure. He didn't say this, but verse 6, shout and sing for joy. Okay? So shouting is okay, right? Not put anything on here. But there's times when, as we're here in worship, and there will be like a celebrative song, and, and I know it's just, yes, Lord, right? And that's a good thing. So shouting is something that God's people will do during this time between the first and second comings of Christ, all right? Shout and sing for joy. Okay, so those are the three things. Now, so I was at this point just looking over the passage and praying about where things should go this morning, and I just felt like God wanted us to camp on number two. Uh, Number one, giving thanks for our forgiveness. I'm sure we could all grow in that, but I, but I think I think we've I think we understand that one. All right. 
Number three, we could all grow in two, but that's an outflow of number two, because when you are really trusting God as your salvation, you will speak of him to people around you. And so I, I just felt like we should focus on number two. So can we do that? I just want to spend the rest of our time now unpacking this issue of trusting God and not being afraid. God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. So let's talk about how we can overcome fear. How does that really work? Because we have lots of fears. You have fears, right? We all have lots of fears. And I think we need to grow in this one. I mean, you might be afraid of not getting married. You might be afraid of not having kids. You might be afraid of losing your spouse. You might fear being diagnosed with cancer. You might fear having something tragic happen to your kids. You might fear having your spouse be diagnosed with Alzheimer's. Right? I mean, just think of the worst things that, 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 that people fear. Okay? And you've probably got some I haven't mentioned. But we, we all have areas that we struggle with fear. Where you just find your... With me, it's usually at 4 o'clock in the morning. It's just like I wake up and just, ah, you know, and there's this fear. Because everything looks bleak at 4 o'clock in the morning. So we have, we have fears. But if you see here, Isaiah says that God's people will trust and not be afraid. I want to unpack this, because at this point, we could very easily kind of move into cliche land. Just kind of be shallow. I'm supposed to trust God, I'm not supposed to be afraid. Well, that's never worked for me. Okay, or God has given me, not given us a spirit of fear, but of power. And that's true, but just saying that doesn't make it so in my heart. Right? So how do we trust God? What does that really mean? How does trusting God result in me not fearing? Because I would guess some of you, if you're honest, right now there's fears in your heart. So how, how does this really work? That's what I want to try to unpack this morning. So I thought of something that, that I could very easily fear, and that's losing my wife, Jan. Okay? 34 years? 33 years? Anyway. Then it's been amazing. Okay? 33, just count. Okay. I was close. That's the, one year's close enough. All right. Um, so, you know, Jan is my, she's my best friend. Uh, she's my confidant. She's my lover. She's my soulmate, you know. Uh, she's my advisor and my counselor. She... Helps me see flaws in my life graciously. She's my, my cheerleader, my encourager. If I were to lose Jan, it would be devastating. Okay? And that, that's, that's a good thing in a sense, right? Because, I mean, what, what a gift God's given to me in her. And um, I would terribly miss Jan. So I, I could fear losing Jan, all right? But Isaiah says here, that if I'm trusting God, I don't need to fear losing Jan. Right? You know what he says? If I'm trusting God, I don't need to fear losing Jan. That's exactly what he says. That is what he says. If you're trusting God, you don't need to fear not getting married or not having children. You don't need to fear being diagnosed with cancer 
or Alzheimer's. You don't need to fear losing your job. You don't need to fear these things. Why not? That's the question. Why not? I will trust and not be afraid. Why? Why? We've got to unpack this. So it's not just cliche level, but get down into the nitty and the gritty and work this out. Why? Why, if we trust God, do we not need to be afraid? Trusting God means trusting his promises, right? If you trust somebody, there's some implicit or explicit promise that they've made. So trusting God means trusting his promises. We talk about God's promises all the time here at Mercy Hill Church. And in this passage, Isaiah has mentioned one specific promise. He puts it this way. God promises to be my salvation. God is my salvation. That's the way Isaiah summarizes the promise. God promises to be my salvation. So what does that mean? So if I'm trusting God as my salvation, I will not fear, need to fear these other things. What does it mean that God is my salvation? Does that mean that God will save me from ever losing my wife? No. Does that mean God will save you from ever being diagnosed with cancer? No. God is your savior doesn't mean he will necessarily save you from those things. What does it mean? Let me mention two things at least that it means that I think are pertinent to this fear issue. Two things that it means. One is that God will completely, completely satisfy you in himself. Two scriptures. Psalm 1611, which we like to refer to a lot here also, says, you will make known to me the path of life. And these next two lines are the key. In your presence, there is what? Fullness of joy. And at your right hand, there are pleasures forever. In God's presence, there is fullness of joy. So my Greatest, lastingest joy is found in God. God is my fullness of joy. When I can behold God and fellowship with God and love God in the person of Jesus, my heart can be filled to overflowing, Psalm 1611. And then the second verse, Psalm 73, 25 and 26 says, "Whom the psalmist is talking to God, whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. And don't misunderstand that. It's not that following Jesus is kind of like you won't have any other desires. No, I have have great desires for Jan, great joy in Jan. God's given her to me. But what this means is simply this. I don't need to depend upon Jan for my full and lavish and overflowing joy. Because as amazing as Jan is, God is infinitely better. And that's saying a lot. God's infinitely better. God's infinitely better. Infinitely better. And so the first thing we trust about God as our salvation is who he is, is my all-satisfying treasure. It's in your presence. 
that there's fullness of joy. Just you, not what you give, who you are, fellowshipping with you. Now, now do you experience that? Because see, if this is just words at this point, it's not going to resonate in your heart. It's not going to do much for you. It's just like, uh, it sounds interesting in theory. I've never felt that. You, you can feel this, not constantly, by any means, but as you seek the Lord, as you walk with Jesus, as you come together at times like this and worship, as you're by yourself with the word, as you're in your home group and you're sharing the scriptures together and fellowshipping together, there will be frequent times when God will pour his spirit out upon you and you in, in God alone will be satisfied. You don't need anything else. If I could have you, it's all I need. You're all I need. You will have times like that. If you haven't, and I'm sure there's many here who have not, maybe not recently, maybe not ever, let's talk about it. Don't want don't to play games. Don't want to just, we, we want to get into the nitty gritty because the scriptures say this is what you will experience as a follower of Jesus. Not constantly, did I say that? Okay, you, you heard that, right? Not constantly, but frequently. This is, the, this is the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So God will completely satisfy you in himself. Second aspect of what it means that God is our salvation is that God will use every loss to bring us even more satisfaction in him. Every loss. I think of 2 Corinthians four sixteen through 18. Memorize these verses. One phrase from there says, Paul says, momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory, far beyond all comparison. So Paul takes all of the sufferings he's experienced in this life and he categorizes them as momentary light affliction. And Paul had suffered a lot. Momentary light affliction, it's producing something. So every loss is ordained by God to bring us gain of more of him, more satisfaction in him. Every loss, if you're trusting Jesus, every loss you will ever incur, and you will incur losses. Following Jesus does not mean you'll never face any losses. It doesn't mean you'll never get cancer. We'll pray God often heals. He doesn't always heal. There's times where he ordains it to bring you the, the even greater satisfaction of knowing him than you could have had otherwise. So God will completely satisfy you in himself and every loss you face is ordained by God to bring you even more satisfaction in him than you could have had otherwise. So that's what it means that God is your salvation. Now apply that to your fear. Take your fear, just take it by the horns or whatever analogy you want to use, just take it and then let's apply this to that area of fear. So take my, the fear I could have of losing Jan. I want to trust that God is my salvation. So I say, Father, you in yourself are fullness of joy forever. I don't need Jan to be filled to overflowing with joy. You've given her to me. Thank you. But I don't need Jan. And if you ordained to take Jan before me, which is, by the way, what I pray for 
for her sake, okay? For her sake. But if, if you if you take her before me, in that setting, you will give me even more of the fullness of knowing you than I could have had otherwise. Even more is coming if you chose to take her. I don't want you to... Anyway, but all right. So, so that's how it works. And so you... You pray these things through. Now, you might just think, okay, but, I mean, I haven't experienced it. And you're right, I haven't experienced it. I'm glad I haven't. I'm thankful that I haven't. Is that really what would happen? And the answer is yes. That's what God's word says would happen. That's the most important thing. If God's word says that'll happen, then that's what'll happen. I am also grateful for the testimony of a man named Hudson Taylor. Missionary to inland China, 1800s. He wrote a two-volume, or his, his, his uh, son or grandson wrote a two-volume book about his life, which I've read at least twice so far. Okay, read this quote. Check this out. This is amazing. 1870, his wife died while he was there in China, missionary. Here's what he wrote in a letter. Many thanks for your loving sympathy in my bereavement. Only Jesus knows what my wife's absence means to me. Jesus knows. This is hard. Twelve and a half years of such unbroken spiritual fellowship, united labor, mutual satisfaction, and love. They had a sweet marriage. Get this though, this next line. But no language can express what Jesus has been and is to me. Never, this is his emphasis, never In the letter, he underlined that word. Does he leave me? Constantly, does he cheer me with his love? He who once wept at the grave of Lazarus often now weeps in and with me. His own rest, his own peace, his own joy, he gives me. I'll get this next line. Often I find myself wondering whether it is possible for her who is taken to have more joy in his presence than he has given me. Let me read that again. Often I find myself wondering whether it's possible for her, my wife, who he's taken, who's in heaven now, it's possible for her in heaven to have more joy in his presence than he's given me. If he has taken her to heaven, he's also brought heaven here to me, for he is heaven. Not what he gives, who he is. At times, he does suffer me to realize all that was, but is not now. It's kind of old English, but what he's saying is there's times, Jesus, where you let me deeply feel all that I had with my wife that I don't have now. Okay? This is not a plastic, kind of a paste, your, a smile on your face kind of thing. This is, this is weeping with Jesus, feeling lost with Jesus, and being satisfied in Jesus. At times he does suffer me to realize all that was, but is not now. And then he who will soon come and wipe away every tear comes and takes all bitterness Away and fills my heart with deep, true, unutterable gladness. That's why I don't need to fear losing Jan as 
devastating as that would be to me. And that's why you don't need to fear not getting married, not having children, having something difficult to happen to your children, cancer, whatever. It's because God is your salvation. He will so fill you with himself that you, you'll be good. You'll be satisfied to overflowing. And any loss he ordains in your future, he's ordained in his love and his wisdom and his goodness. It's a loss that's a gift of more of the all-satisfying presence of who he is. That's why you don't need to fear. Okay, so what should I do then? Let's say this afternoon I all of a sudden get gripped by the fear of, of Jan dying. Or what should you do if, if when, you're, when you're gripped by that fear? Because it'll happen. It'll happen to me. It'll happen to you. What should you do? Well, the short answer is you should trust God. But don't let that just be a cliché. Work through what that means. Let me ask you this question. Am I trusting God if I were to say, oh, Steve, listen, you and Jan are still relatively young and you're in good health. Don't think about that. Don't think about that. Is that trusting God? No. Denial of what might happen is not trusting God. It's not trusting God. That's a, that's a very fragile, that's a fake kind of peace. It's a plastic peace. That's not the, the rich, full peace that comes from, well, here, here's what you want to do. You want, you want to bring your fear before God. This is what I try to do, and this is what I would encourage you to do. And you lay it at his feet. You say, Lord, you've given me Jan. Here, here she is. You've been so good to me in my marriage. What a gift. She's my second, your second best gift to me. So here, here's Jan. I entrust our future and her to you. Trusting that you're my salvation. You are all I need because in you alone, my heart can overflow with joy. And if you choose to take her, it'll be to let my heart overflow even more in joy in you. So I lay this fear at your feet and I trust that you are my salvation. And when you do that and you pray that through and you work that through and it may take a little longer than the 30 seconds just took me to say that, the peace that comes is real. Not denial. You're looking at what exactly might happen and you're at peace about anything that might happen. I will trust and not be afraid. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. And then the peace that comes won't be the pretend peace of denial. It'll be the real, true peace of trusting. That even if God takes Jan, he's the fullness of joy to me. As amazing as she is, I don't need to depend upon her for my joy. He will fill and fully satisfy me. And even the loss will be used by him to bring me more. Okay, now what questions does that raise?
Yes, that's a good question. Did y'all hear that? What about um, his brother who doesn't know the Lord at this point? I'm going to see Jan in heaven, okay? We're going to hang out. We can talk about that anyway, but, but, but maybe not your brother. So what about that? And, and notice the reason that I can be free from fear is, is not because Jan's going to be in heaven, right? Okay, I mean, I'm, I'm really grateful for that. Okay, um, really grateful for that. But God is my salvation. Jan is not my salvation. She's not my salvation. If any woman could be, it'd be her. But she's not. God's, God's my salvation. In fullness of joy is in God's presence. And so, uh, my freedom from fear now is not because she'll be in heaven. I want to stress that. But what about loved ones who won't be in heaven? And we've all, we've, I imagine we've all got them. Number one, our job now is to pray that they be in heaven to pray that they get saved and to go with them maybe with tears and to plead with them to, to repent and put their trust in Jesus. That's our call now is to care, to love, to sorrow, to weep, to, to plead with them. Okay? That's where our hearts are now. Okay, now, jump ahead when you're with Jesus in heaven forever. Now, you might need to process this and digest this some, but see, at that point, our hearts will be in a different place. And at that point, what we do is we say, we trust you, God, and we see your justice in punishing them because of their rebellion against you forever. And we will be at peace about that forever in heaven. So now we weep, we plead, we go, we pray, we talk, we serve, we love. But in the future, you'll be at peace about those who are being judged, whether it's your brother or it's your spouse Okay, now that may take a lot for you to, to process and digest, but that's that, that's I think the biblical answer. We talked about this a few weeks with Matt and Faith Line. You guys were talking about that, and it was really helpful hearing some of the things that you you thought about. Does that help? He's, you're kind of in limbo because you don't know. Okay, so you can't really land on on what exactly is going to happen. You you hope that maybe he met the Lord at the end. You weren't sure. Okay. But I just encourage you to process that. You will be at peace forever in heaven as you, as you understand the people that are being judged by, by God because it'll be just. It'll be right. He'll be glorified in it. He'll be glorified in it. But that we're not there now. You, you can't feel that now because that's not what we're supposed to feel now. But we will feel it then. Okay? Can anything else fear? How to overcome fear? Are we, are we getting down to the nitty gritty? I want to make sure we're not just settling for cliches here. So how long might it take before you break into really experiencing peace about that fear? How long might that take? It could be instant. Okay. And it has been for you. You've had times like that. Have you had times where it hasn't been instant? I'm, I'm not quite the same as Lisa. There, there's times where it happens instantly, but I also have times where it takes a while. And um, I'm still learning from Lisa, okay? But that's okay, because there, there is a, there, there's often a time lag between changing your thinking and changing your heart. There's a connection between the two, but there's a time lag I've found oftentimes in my own life. And so be patient with yourself, but just be before the Lord. Have your home group pray for you and, and, and with you. And just be before the Lord because uh, be anxious for nothing, 
But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses comprehension, will. It will. It will. Instantly, 10 minutes, but it will. Guard your hearts and minds. And, and just remember, Hudson Taylor, he was not free from sorrow in that quote, right? Did you catch that? In fact, I would argue that maybe he felt even deeper sorrow than he would have apart from the Lord. Because the Lord lets you do that, but the Lord was in all of it, weeping with him and in him. What, what does that feel like, Hudson? I want to hear more about that one. So the sorrow you're feeling now is it's holy. It's a holy sorrow, and it's mixed with, mingled with peace. And that's a, that's a really important question. I'm sure many people are, are asking that question. So it's, I'm so glad you raised this. Um, like, like you said, it might be sin, but it may not be. But it might be. And if it is, as you're coming before the Lord, he will make it clear to you. <laughs> he doesn't play hard to get. Okay? He will tell you. And maybe ask, your, you know, ask, ask a confidant, would you pray with me about this? Okay? Bring the body in. Don't let this be a lone ranger thing. So, so it may be sin. All right? But it may not be sin. Okay? Psalm 42 has brought me great comfort because the author of Psalm 42 is seeking after God, and he knows God will meet him with his presence, but it's not happening yet. And there's no sense in that psalm that it's because of sin in his life. There, there will be times in your life when God will let you seek and will lift his hand, will, will hold his hand back from, hand of favor and blessing and presence back from you to, there's all kinds of benefits that come from that. Um, our longing for God grows and we get more refined in the process and all of it so that when he does give it to us, it'll be even sweeter. He will give it and it will be even sweeter. So you're in a good place. Okay. You're seeking. And I would think if we asked for raise a, a show of hands, many of us would be here, but what we must not do is don't stop seeking. We shouldn't settle for not sensing God's love being poured into our hearts. Now, let me also, one other thing too, and that is make sure that we don't set the bar, I want to to say this carefully, but don't set the bar too high. You read about a story like Hudson Taylor, and it's like, whoa, I'd like that now, and if I'm not experiencing that level of closeness now, something's wrong. Well, maybe something's wrong, but maybe not. Because uh, there's ebb and flow, there's high degrees and lower degrees, right? I mean, you see that in Paul, you see that in Psalm 42, you see that in the scripture. So don't set the bar too high. It may also be that God is regularly giving you tastes and outpourings of his love that are small but sweet, and for you to cling to those and thank him for those too. Okay, that may be, may be part of the equation as well. And the way you can tell the difference is if it's unbelief, you won't bring it to God. And if, it's, and if it's just doubt, then you, you will see. I believe, help me, and believe, help me. Okay, let's stand together. I just want to pray this over us. I have fears, Lord, you know, and, and we, all, we all struggle with fears. And Isaiah tells us that when we trust you as our salvation, we will trust and not be afraid. So I pray that this week, each of us could have times where we lay our fears at your feet and trust you to be our all-satisfying treasure 
and trust that any loss you would ordain for us would be the means of gaining even more heart satisfaction in you. And so we would be able to thank you and welcome it from you. Lord, I pray that, that, that this wouldn't just be words, but that this would be the experience of our hearts this week. Do that, Lord, I pray. Lord, I pray for those here who have been seeking you and have, don't feel like they've been finding lately. Lord, I pray that you would meet them. I pray that you would pour out your spirit upon them. And we trust your perfect timing. Everything you do is love and mercy and goodness in Christ. And so encourage them. Lord, anybody here where it's sin that's keeping them from experiencing you, in your love, would you make that clear to them? We pray. And Lord, let us be the the people that Isaiah describes here. Let us be a people that are free from fear because we have our heart satisfaction in you. You are filling us overflowing and we know that whatever you choose to have happen will bring us even more. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.